When I was given this assignment to speak in the priesthood session of General Conference, my thought, first thought came to a wonderful primary teacher. Her great desire was to prepare us to be worthy of receiving the priesthood. She grilled us on the requirements for graduation from primary. We memorized the names of the members of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles and the Articles of Faith. She also made us a promise. If all of us could recite the thirteen Articles of Faith by memory, we could choose a place and go on an outing for our last class. We decided on a special spot we liked to hike to on the rocky slopes just above the first dam, the entrance to Logan Canyon. There was a small, flat space in these rocky cliffs that had a natural fireplace where you could cook hot dogs and roast marshmallows. When we chose the location, however, we did not consider our teacher, who was older and certainly not the athletic type. If we'd thought more carefully, it might have occurred to us that she would have a difficult time making the hike. Her promise was her bond. However, she gamely followed us. First, we climbed up the small hill. In our day, there was no power lines to prevent access. With some help, our teacher made it up the hill. Once over the top, we dropped down into the rocky ridge to the place we called Turtleback. After we arrived, it took our teacher a little while to catch her breath. By the time we were prepared to sit down and eat, she had recovered enough to teach us our final lesson. She told us of how she had enjoyed teaching us in primary for the last two years. She complimented us on how we had mastered the Articles of Faith. She could call out any number of any one of them, and we could quote it back to her. Then she said, Memorizing the Articles of Faith would mean nothing more than a lot of words unless we understood the doctrines and principles contained in them. She encouraged us to study the gospel doctrine taught in each article of faith. She explained that the doctrine found in the articles of faith was divided into sections. We learn from the first article of faith that the Godhead is three personages, God the Father, Jesus the Christ, and the Holy Ghost. The second article teaches us that we are responsible for our own actions. The third gives us a vision of the Savior's mission or the salvation of our Father in Heaven's children. The fourth teaches us the importance of basic principles and ordinances. The power of our teacher's words has been a source of inspiration to me because of the emphasis she placed on gospel study. The scriptures guide us to a standard of truth which we can judge the knowledge we are receiving, whether it be true or false. 
True doctrine comes from God, the source and foundation of all truth. The teachings and concepts of true doctrine are found in the gospel of our Lord and Savior. False teaching comes from Satan, the father of all lies. His desire is to pervert, change, and alter revealed truth. He wants to deceive us, so some of us will lose our way along the journey back to our heavenly home. The scriptures teach us how to avoid false teachings. For example, in Paul's letter to the Timothy, we read, All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that a man of God may be perfect, thoroughly finished, unto all good works. This doctrine is to the Church like a battery in a cell phone. When you remove the battery from the cell phone, it becomes useless. A Church in which true doctrine is no longer taught is similarly useless. It cannot guide us back to our Heavenly Father and our eternal home. After we start to understand the basic doctrines of Christ, the fifth and sixth article of faith teaches us about the organization and order of the priesthood. Under the direction of the Lord, Joseph Smith organized the Savior's Church using priesthood authority, the power of God. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is the same organization that Christ organized and directed while He was on the earth. What a glorious day it was for Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery in May 1829 when they went into the woods to pray about a doctrine of baptism for the remission of sins that they had read about while translating the Book of Mormon. There were many teachings about baptism being taught by different churches in the early 1800s, and Joseph and Oliver knew they could not all be true. They wanted to know about the correct manner of baptism and also who had the authority to baptize. In answer to their petitions to the Lord, a heavenly messenger was sent. John the Baptist appeared to them. One by one he placed his hands on their heads and conferred upon them the authority to baptize in these words, Upon you, my fellow servants, in the name of Messiah, I confer the priesthood of Aaron. What a marvelous day in the history of the world! The priesthood was restored to the earth. When we receive the priesthood, we receive the authority to act in the name of God and lead us in ways of truth and righteousness. This authority is a vital source of righteous power and influences, influence for the benefit of God's children on earth 
and will last beyond the veil. It was necessary for the priesthood to be restored before the true Church of Jesus Christ could be organized. This is the fundamental lesson we learn from the fifth and sixth article of faith. The next three articles of faith, seven, eight, and nine, outline resources available to instruct us in our mortal journey. We are given spiritual gifts to guide us as we follow the Lord's teaching and protect us from evil. The scriptures are another guide. If we read them carefully, the Word of God, He will reveal our path back to eternal life. The ninth article of faith teaches us that God has revealed, does reveal, and will reveal in the future many great and important truths to His prophets, seers, and revelators. We can learn that in addition to listening to the still, small voice of the Spirit and reading the scriptures, that another source of guidance is our Church leaders who are chosen, called, and set apart to bless our lives through the lessons they teach. The tenth, eleventh, and twelfth articles of faith instruct us on how to conduct missionary work and share the gospel in a world of many nations and various laws. We learn about the gathering of Israel in preparation for the second coming of the Savior. We are instructed that men and women are agents unto themselves, and they can either accept or reject the word of God according to their own conscience. Finally, we learn as we spread the gospel of Jesus Christ to the four corners of the earth that we must respect the governments of each nation we enter. Truly, we believe in obeying, honoring, and sustaining the law of each land. The thirteenth article of faith provides special insight into how we should conduct our lives and present ourselves. It reads, We believe in being honest, true, chaste, benevolent, virtuous, and in doing good to all men. Indeed, we may say we follow the admonition of Paul. We believe all things. We hope all things. We've endured many things and hope to be able to endure all things. If there's anything virtuous, lovely, or of good report, or praiseworthy, we seek after these things. All of us should aspire to embody these attributes and lead lives that are exemplary for them. The truths taught in the Articles of Faith build one upon another like the components of a cell phone, mutually supporting one another, like an elaborate supply chain that adds components to a cell phone. The Articles of Faith supply us with key doctrines of the Restoration. Each article of faith adds unique value to our understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. My primary teacher instilled in me a determination to study the doctrines of the kingdom. She taught me to seek the deep meanings contained in these simple articles of faith. She promised me that if I would invest in learning these sacred truths, 
that the knowledge I acquire would change my life for the better, and I testify to you that it has. After my teacher's wonderful lesson on the mountain in Logan Canyon, we noticed we'd stayed a little longer than we'd planned. The evening was drawing to a close, and we realized we had a real problem. My teacher had struggled to arrive at this special spot, but returning presented a major challenge to us. This only compounded our poor selection of the place for our outing. The climb back was difficult for us, but even more so for a person of her age. As we struggled to help her back up the hill, two policemen appeared. The primary president had sent them out to find us, fearing we were lost. <laughs> the drama of the event and the lessons taught made an unforgettable experience in my life. You young men, I encourage you to use your bright minds to study and learn the articles of faith and the doctrines they teach. They are among the most important and certainly the most concise statements of doctrine in the Church. If you will use them as a guide to direct your studies of the gospel of Jesus Christ, you will find yourself prepared to declare your witness of the restored truth to the world. You will be able to declare in simple, straightforward, and profound ways the core beliefs you hold dear as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I add my testimony to the truthfulness of the Thirteen Articles of Faith in the name of our Lord and Savior, even Jesus Christ. Amen. Tonight, in the Conference Center in Salt Lake City, and in locations far and near, are assembled those who bear the priesthood of God. Truly, you are a royal priesthood, even a chosen generation, as the Apostle Peter declared. I am honored to have the privilege to address you. When I was growing up each summer, our family would drive to Provo Canyon, about 45 miles south and a little east of Salt Lake City, where we would stay in the family cabin for several weeks. We boys were always anxious to get on the fishing stream or into the swimming hole, and we tried to push the car a little faster. In those days, the automobile my father drove was a 1928 Oldsmobile. If he went over 35 miles an hour, my mother would say, Keep it down! Keep it down! <laughs> I would say, Put the accelerator down, Dad. Put it down. Dad would drive about 35 miles an hour all the way up to Provo Canyon or until we would come around to bend in the road and our journey would be halted by a herd of sheep. We'd watch as hundreds of sheep filed past us, seemingly without a shepherd, a few dogs yapping at their heels, 
as they moved along. Way back in the rear, we could see the sheep herder on his horse, not a bridle on it, but a halter. He was occasionally slouched down in the saddle, dozing, since the horse knew which way to go, and the yappy dogs did the work. Contrast that to the scene which I viewed in Munich, Germany, many years ago. It was a Sunday morning. We were en route to a missionary conference. As I looked out the window of the mission president's automobile, I saw a shepherd with a staff in his hand leading the sheep. They followed him wherever he went. If he moved to the left, they followed him to the left. If he moved them to the right, they followed him in that direction. I made the comparison between the true shepherd who led his sheep and the sheep herder who rode casually behind his sheep. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd and know my sheep. Close quote. He provides for us the perfect example of what a true shepherd should be. Brethren, as the priesthood of God, we have a shepherding responsibility. The wisdom of the Lord has provided guidelines whereby we might be shepherds to the families of the Church. Where we can serve, we can teach, and we can testify to them. Such is called home teaching. And it's about this that I wish to speak to you tonight. The bishop of each ward in the Church oversees the assigning of priesthood holders as home teachers to visit the homes of members every month. They go in pairs. Where possible, a young man who is a priest or a teacher in the Aaronic priesthood accompanies an adult holding the Melchizedek priesthood. As they go into the homes of those for whom they are responsible, the Aaronic priesthood holder should take part in the teaching which takes place. Such an assignment will help to prepare these young men for missions as well as for a lifetime of priesthood service. The home teaching program is a response to modern revelation, commissioning those who ordained to the priesthood to teach, expound, exhort, baptize, and visit the home of each member and exhort them to pray vocally and in secret and attend to all family duties, to watch over the Church always and be with and strengthen them, and see that there is no iniquity in the Church, neither hardness with each other, neither lying, backbiting, or evil speaking. President David O. McKay admonished Home teaching is one of our most urgent and most rewarding opportunities to nurture and inspire, to counsel and direct our Father's children. It is a divine service, a divine call. It is our duty as home teachers to carry the Spirit into every home and every heart, to love the work do our best 
will bring unbounded peace, joy, and satisfaction to a noble, dedicated teacher of God's children." From the Book of Mormon, we read that Alma consecrated all their priests, all their teachers, and none were consecrated except they were just men. Therefore, they did watch over their people and did nourish them with things pertaining to righteousness. In performing our home teaching responsibilities, we are wise if we learn and understand the challenges of each of the members of each family that might be effective in teaching and providing needed assistance. A home teaching visit is also more likely to be successful if an appointment is made in advance. To illustrate this point, let me share with you an experience I had some years ago. At that time, the Missionary Executive Committee was comprised of Spencer W. Kimball, Gordon B. Hinckley, and Thomas S. Watson. One evening, Brother and Sister Hinckley hosted a dinner in their home for the committee members and our wives. We had just finished a lovely meal when there was a knock at the door. President Hinckley opened the door and found one of his home teachers standing there. The home teacher said, I know I didn't make an appointment to come. I don't have with me my companion, but I felt I should come tonight. I didn't know you'd be entertaining company. President Hinckley graciously invited the home teacher to come in and sit down and to instruct three apostles <laughs> and our wives concerning our duty as members. With a bit of trepidation, the home teacher did his best. President Hinckley thanked him for coming, after which he made a hurried exit. I mentioned one more example of the incorrect way to accomplish home teaching. President Marion G. Romney, who was a counselor in the First Presidency some years ago, used to tell about his home teacher, who once went to the Romney home on a cold winter night. He kept his hat in his hand and shifted nervously when invited to sit down and give his message. As he remained standing, he said, Well, I'll tell you, Brother Romney, it's cold outside, and I left my car engine running so it wouldn't stop. I just came by so I could tell the bishop I'd made my visits. <laughs> President Ezra Taft Benson, after relating President Romney's experience in a meeting of priesthood holders, then said, we can do better than that, brethren. Much better. I agree. Home teaching is more than a mechanical visit once per month. Ours is the responsibility to teach, to inspire, to motivate. And where we visit those who are not active, to bring to activity and to eventual exaltation, the sons and daughters of God. To assist in our efforts, I share this wise counsel, which surely applies to home teachers. It comes from Abraham Lincoln, 
who said, If you would win a man to your cause, first convince him that you are his sincere friend. End quote. President Ezra Taft Benson urged, above all, be a genuine friend to the individuals and families you teach. End quote. A friend makes more than a dutiful visit each month. A friend is more concerned about helping people than getting credit. A friend cares. A friend shows love. A friend listens. And a friend reaches out. Home teaching answers many prayers and permits us to see the transformations which can take place in people's lives. An example of this would be Dick Hammer, who came to Utah with the Civilian Consecration Corps during the Depression. He met and married a Latter-day Saint young woman. He opened Dick's Cafe in St. George, Utah, which became a popular meeting spot. Assigned as home teacher to the Hammer family was Willard Milne, a friend of mine. Since I knew Dick Hammer as well, having printed the menus for his cafe, I would ask my friend, Brother Milne, when I visited St. George, how's our friend Dick Hammer coming? The reply would be generally, he's coming slowly. When Willard Millen and his companion visited the Hammer home each month, they always managed to present a gospel message and to share their testimonies with Dick and the family. The years passed by, and then one day Willard phoned me with good news. From the monster he began, Dick Hammer is converted and is going to be baptized. He's in his 90th year, and we've been friends all our adult lives. His decision warms my heart. I've been his home teacher for many years. There was a catch in Willard's voice as he conveyed his welcome message. Brother Hammer was indeed baptized, and a year later entered that beautiful St. George Temple and there received his endowment and sealing blessings. I asked Willard, did you ever become discouraged as his home teacher for such a long time? He replied, no, it was worth every effort. As I witnessed the joy which has come to the members of the Hammer family, my heart fills with gratitude for the blessings the gospel has brought into their lives and for the privilege I've had to help in some way. I'm a happy man, close quote. Brethren, it will be our privilege through the years to visit and teach many individuals, those who are less active as well as those who are fully committed. If we are conscientious in our calling, we will have many opportunities to bless lives. Our visits to those who have distanced themselves from Church activity can be the key which will eventually open the doors to their return. With this thought in mind, let us reach out to those for whom we are responsible, 
Bring them to the table of the Lord. Feast on His Word and enjoy the companionship of His Spirit. And be no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. If any of you has slipped into complacency concerning home teaching visits, may I say there is no time like the present to rededicate yourself to fulfilling your home teaching duties. Decide now to make whatever effort is necessary to reach those whom you've been given responsibility. There are a little extra prodding sometimes that will be needed as well to help your home teaching companion find the time to go with you. But if you're persistent, you will succeed. Brethren, in our home teaching efforts, remember they're ongoing. The work will never be concluded till the Lord and Master says, It is enough. There are lives to brighten. There are hearts to touch. There are souls to save. Ours is the sacred privilege to brighten, to touch, and to save those precious souls entrusted to our care. We should do so faithfully and with hearts filled with gladness. In closing, I turn to one particular example to describe the type of home teachers we should be. There is one teacher whose life foreshadows all others. He taught of life and death, of duty and destiny. He lived not to be served, but to serve, not to receive, but to give, not to save his life, but to sacrifice it for others. He described a love more beautiful than lust, a poverty richer than treasure. It was said of this teacher that he taught with authority and not as did the scribes. His laws were not inscribed upon stone, but upon human hearts. I speak of the Master Teacher, even Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior and Redeemer of all mankind. The biblical account says of him, he went about doing good. With him as our unfailing guide and exemplar, we shall qualify for his divine help in our home teaching. Lives will be blessed. Hearts will be comforted. Souls will be saved. We will become true shepherds. That this may be so, I pray in the name of that great shepherd, Jesus Christ. Amen. All of us are blessed 
with responsibility for others. To hold the priesthood of God is to be held responsible by God for the eternal lives of His children. That is real, that is wonderful, and at times that can feel overwhelming. There are elders quorum presidents listening tonight who know what I mean. Here is what happened to one of you. It has likely happened to many of you and more than once. The details may vary, but the situation is the same. An elder you do not know well asked for your help. He had just found out that he had to move his wife and young baby boy today from the apartment where they had been living to another one nearby. He and his wife had already asked a friend if they could borrow a truck for the day to move their household and personal belongings. The friend loaned them the truck. The young father began to load all they owned into the truck, but in the first few minutes he hurt his back. The friend who loaned the truck was too busy to help. The young father felt desperate. He thought of you, his elders' quorum president. By the time he asked for help, it was early afternoon. It was the day of an evening church meeting. You had already promised to help your wife with household projects that day. Your children had asked you to do something with them, but you hadn't gotten to it yet. You also knew that the members of your quorum, particularly the most faithful, the ones you usually called on to help, were likely to be in the same time bind that you were in. The Lord knew you would have such days when He called you to this position, so He gave you a story to encourage you. It is a parable for overloaded priesthood holders. We sometimes call it the story of the Good Samaritan, but it is really the story of a great priesthood bearer in these busy, difficult last days. The story is a perfect fit for the overtaxed priesthood servant. Just remember that you are the Samaritan and not the priest or the Levite who passed by <laughs> the wounded man. You may not have thought of that story when you face such challenges, but I pray you will when such days come again, as they surely will. We are not told in the scripture why the Samaritan was traveling on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It is not likely that he was taking a stroll alone, since he must have known that robbers waited for the unwary. He was on a serious journey, and as was customary, he had with him a beast of burden as well as oil and wine. In the Lord's words, the Samaritan, when he saw the wounded man, stopped because he had compassion. More than only feeling compassion, he acted. Always remember the specifics of the account. Quote, and he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine 
and set him on his beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And on the morrow, when he departed, he took out two pence and gave them to the host and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatsoever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Close quote. You and the priesthood bearers you are called to lead can have at least three assurances. First, the Lord will give you, if you ask, the feelings of the compassion He feels for those in need. Second, He will provide others, like the innkeeper, to join with you in your service. And third, the Lord, like the Good Samaritan, will more than recompense all who join in giving help to those in need. You quorum presidents likely have acted on those assurances more than once. You asked others of the Lord's priesthood to help with confidence that they would respond with compassion. You are not afraid to ask those who have responded most often in the past because you knew that they feel compassion easily. You ask them knowing that in the past they have felt the Lord's generosity when they chose to help. You ask some already heavily burdened, knowing that the greater the sacrifice, the greater the compensation they will receive from the Lord. Those who have helped in the past have felt the overflowing gratitude of the Savior. You may well have been inspired not to ask someone to help load and then unload that truck. As a leader, you know your quorum members and their families well. The Lord knows them perfectly. He knows whose wife was near the breaking point because her husband was unable to find time to do what she needed done to care for her needs. He knows which children would be blessed by seeing their father go one more time to help others, or if the children needed the feeling that they matter to their father enough for him to spend time with them that day. But he also knows who needs the invitation to serve but might not appear, appear to be likely or a willing candidate. You cannot know all your quorum members perfectly well, but God does. So as you have done many times, you prayed to know who to ask to help serve others. The Lord knows who will be blessed by being asked to help and whose family will be blessed by not being asked. That is the revelation you can expect to come to you as you lead in the priesthood. I saw that happen when I was a young man. I was the first assistant in a priest quorum. The bishop called me one day at my home. He said that he wanted me to go with him to visit a widow in great need. He said he needed me. As I waited for him to pick me up at my home, I was troubled. I knew the bishop had strong and wise counselors. One was a famous judge. The other ran a large company and would later become a general authority. The bishop himself would someday serve as a general authority. 
Why was the bishop saying to an inexperienced priest, I need your help? Well, I know better now what he might have said to me. The Lord needs to bless you. At the home of the widow, I saw him, to my amazement, tell the woman that she could get no help from the church until she filled out the budget form he had left with her earlier. On the way home, as he saw how shocked I was, he chuckled at my surprise and said, Hal, when she gets control of her spending, she will be able to help others, close quote. On another occasion, my bishop took me with him to the home of alcoholic parents who sent two frightened little girls to meet us at the door. After he visited with the two little girls, we turned away, and he said to me, We can't change the tragedy in their lives yet, but they can feel that the Lord loves them." On another evening, he took me to the home of a man who hadn't come to church in years. The bishop told him how much he loved him and how much the ward needed him. I have to put this in. I hadn't thought I would, but the fellow kicked a a beer bottle with his foot uh, to get it out of the way so the bishop wouldn't see it. I heard it roll across the floor. Uh, the, the, the bishop's kindness didn't seem to have much effect on the man. But that time, and every time the bishop took me with him, it had a great effect on me. There is no way that I can find out whether the bishop prayed to know which priest would be blessed by going with him on those visits. He may, he may, he may well have taken other priests with him many times. But the Lord knew I would someday be a bishop, inviting those whose faith had grown cold to come back to the warmth of the gospel. The Lord knew I would someday be charged with the priesthood responsibility for hundreds and even thousands of Heavenly Heavenly Father's children who were in desperate temporal need. The young men cannot know what acts of priesthood service the Lord is preparing you to give. But the greater challenge for every priesthood holder is to give spiritual help. All of us have that charge. It comes with being a member of a quorum. It comes with being a member of a family. If the faith of anyone in your quorum or your family is attacked by Satan, you will feel compassion. Much like the service and mercy given by the Samaritan, you will also administer to them with healing balm for their wounds in their time of need. In your service as a full-time missionary, you'll go to thousands of people in great spiritual need. Many, until you teach them, will not even know that they have spiritual wounds that, left untreated, will bring endless misery. You'll go on the Lord's errand to rescue them. Only the Lord can bind up their spiritual wounds as they accept the ordinances that lead to eternal life. As a quorum member, as a home teacher, and as a missionary, you cannot help people repair spiritual damage unless your own faith is vibrant. That means far more than reading the scriptures regularly and praying over them. The prayer in the moment and quick glances in the scriptures are not preparation enough. The reassurance of what you will need comes with this counsel from the 84th section of the Doctrine and Covenants. Quote, Neither take ye thought beforehand what ye shall say, 
but treasure up in your minds continually the words of life, and it shall be given you in the very hour of that portion that shall be meted unto every man." Close quote. That promise can only be claimed if we treasure up the words of life and do it continually. The treasuring part of that scripture has meant for me a matter of feeling something about the words. For instance, when I have gone to try to help someone wavering in his or her faith about the Prophet Joseph Smith's divine calling, feelings come back to me. It is not only the words from the Book of Mormon. It is a feeling of assurance of truth that comes whenever I read even a few lines from the Book of Mormon. I cannot promise that will come to every person infected with doubt about the Prophet Joseph or the Book of Mormon. But I know Joseph Smith is the prophet of the Restoration. I know that the Book of Mormon is the Word of God because I have treasured it. I know from experience that you can get assurance of truth from the spirits because it is from the Spirit because it has come to me. You and I must have the, that assurance before the Lord puts us in the way of a traveler we love who has been wounded by the enemies of truth. There is another preparation we must make. It is a human characteristic to become hardened to the pains of others. That is one of the reasons why the Savior went to such lengths to tell of His Atonement and of His taking upon Himself the pains and sorrows of all of our Heavenly Father's children that He might know how to succor them. Even the best of Heavenly Father's mortal priesthood holders do not rise to that standard of compassion easily. Our human tendency is to be impatient with a person who cannot see the truth that is so plain to us. We must be careful that our impatience is not interpreted as condemnation or rejection. As we prepare to give succor for the Lord as His priesthood servants, there is a scripture to guide us. It contains a gift we will need for our journey wherever the Lord will send us. The Good Samaritan had that gift. We will need it, and the Lord has told us how we can find it. Open quote, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, if ye have not charity, ye are nothing, for charity never faileth. Wherefore, cleave unto charity, which is the greatest of all. For all things must fail, but charity is the pure love of Christ, and it endureth forever, and whoso is found possessed of it, at the last day it shall be well with him. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, pray unto the Father with all the energy of heart that ye may be filled with this love which he hath bestowed upon all who are true followers of his Son, Jesus Christ, that ye may become the sons of God, that when we shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, that we may have this hope that we may be purified even as He is pure. I pray that we may prepare ourselves to give, to give whatever priesthood service the Lord may set before us on our mortal journey. In the sacred name of Jesus Christ, amen. Brethren, we are grateful for your attendance this evening. We likewise thank the Aaronic Priesthood Choir for the inspiring music they have provided and acknowledge and thank all those who have assisted in preparing for these proceedings. It will now be our privilege to hear from our prophet, 
President Thomas S. Monson. Following President Monson's remarks, the choir will sing, God of our fathers, whose almighty hand. The benediction will then be offered by Elder Walter F. Gonzalez of the Seventy. What a beautiful sight that is to be among you priesthood holders here in the conference center and with all those around the globe. It's an honor and privilege and joy to be counted among you. When I was young, falling and getting up seemed to be one and the same motion. Over the years, however, I have come to the unsettling conclusion that the laws of physics have changed and not to my advantage. Not long ago, I was skiing with my 12-year-old grandson. We were enjoying our time together when I hit an icy spot and ended up making a glorious crash landing on a steep slope. I tried every trick to stand up, but I couldn't. I had fallen, and I couldn't get up. I felt fine physically, but my ego was a bit bruised. So I made sure that my helmet and goggles were in place since I much preferred that other skiers didn't recognize me. (laughs) I could imagine myself sitting there helplessly as they skied by elegantly, scouting a a cheery, hello, Brother Uchtdorf. I began to wonder what it would take to rescue me. That was when my grandson came to my side. I told him what had happened, but he didn't seem very interested in my explanations of why I couldn't get up. He looked me in the eyes, reached out, took my hand, and in a firm tone said, Opa, you can do it now. Instantly, I stood. I'm still shaking my head over this. What had seemed impossible only a moment before immediately became a reality because a 12-year-old boy reached out to me and said, you can do it now. To me, it was an infusion of confidence, enthusiasm, and strength. Brethren, there may be times in our lives when rising up and continuing on our way may seem beyond our own ability. That day, on a snow-covered slope, I learned something. Even when we think we cannot rise up, there's still hope. And sometimes we just need someone to look us in the eyes, take our hand, and say, you can do it now. We may think that women are more likely than men to have feelings of of inadequacy and disappointment, that it affects them more than us. I'm not sure that this is true. Men experience feelings of guilt, depression, and failure. We might pretend these feelings don't bother us, but they do. We can feel so burdened by our failures and shortcomings that we begin to think we will never be able to succeed. We might even assume 
that because we have fallen before falling is our destiny. As one writer put it, we beat on, boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. I have watched men filled with potential and grace disengage from the challenging work of building the kingdom of God because they had failed a time or two or even three or more times. These were men of promise who could have been exceptional priesthood holders and servants of God. But because they stumbled and became discouraged, they withdrew from their priesthood commitments and pursued other but less worthy endeavors. And thus, they go on living only a shadow of the life they could have led, never rising to the potential that is their birthright. As the poet lamented, these are among those unfortunate souls who die with most of their music still in them. No one likes to fail. And we particularly don't like it when others, especially those we love, see us fail. We all want to be respected and esteemed. We want to be champions. But we mortals do not become champions without effort and discipline or without making mistakes. Brethren, our destiny is not determined by the number of times we stumble, but by the number of times we rise up, dust ourselves off, and move forward. We know this mortal life is a test. But because our Heavenly Father loves us with a perfect love, He shows us where to find the answers. He has given us the map that allows us to navigate the uncertain terrain and unexpected trials that each of us encounters. The words of the prophets are part of this map. When we stray, when we fall or depart from the way of our Heavenly Father, the words of the prophets tell us how to rise up and get back on track. Of all the principles taught by prophets over the centuries, one that has been emphasized over and over and over again is the hopeful and heartwarming message that mankind can repent, change course, and get back on the true path of discipleship. That does not mean that we should be comfortable with our weaknesses, mistakes, or sins. No. But there is an important difference between the sorrow for sin that leads to repentance and the sorrow that leads to despair. The Apostle Paul taught that godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. Godly sorrow inspires change and hope through the atonement Jesus Christ. Worldly sorrow pulls us down, extinguishes hope, and persuades us to give in to further temptation. Godly sorrow leads to conversion and a change of heart. 
It causes us to hate sin and love goodness. It encourages us to stand up and walk tall in the light of Christ's love. True repentance is about transformation, not torture or torment. Yes, heartfelt regret and true remorse for disobedience are often painful and very important steps in the sacred process of repentance. But when guilt leads to self-loathing or prevents us from rising up again, it is impeding rather than promoting our repentance. Brethren, there is a better way. Let us rise up and become men of God. We have a champion, a savior, who walked through the valley of the shadow of death on our behalf. He gave himself as a ransom for our sins. No one has ever had greater love than this. Jesus Christ, the Lamb without blemish, willingly laid himself on the altar of sacrifice and paid the price for our sins to the uttermost farthing. He took upon himself our suffering. He took our burdens, our guilt upon his shoulders. My dear friends, when we decide to come to him, when we take upon ourselves his name and boldly walk in the path of discipleship, then through the atonement, we are promised not only happiness and peace in this world, but also eternal life in the world to come. When we make mistakes, when we sin and fall, let us think of what, means, what it means to truly repent. It means turning our heart and will to God and giving up sin. True heartfelt repentance brings with it the heavenly assurance that we can do it now. One of the adversary's methods to prevent us from progressing is to confuse us about who we really are and what we really desire. We want to spend time with our children, but we also want to engage in our favorite manly hobbies. We want to lose weight, but we also want to enjoy the foods we grave. We want to become Christ-like, but we also want to give the guy who cuts us off in traffic a piece of our mind. <laughs> Satan's purpose is to tempt us to exchange the priceless pearls of true happiness and eternal values for a fake plastic trinket that is merely an illusion and counterfeit of happiness and joy. Another method the adversary uses to discourage us from rising up is to make us see the commandments as things that have been forced upon us. I suppose it is human nature to resist anything that does not appear to be our own idea in the first place. If we see healthy eating and exercise as something only our doctor expects of us, we will likely fail. 
if we see these things and choices as who we are and who we want to become, we have a greater chance of staying the course and succeeding. If we see home teaching as only the stake president's goal, we may place a lower value on doing it. If we see it as our goal, something we desire to do in order to become more Christ-like and minister to others, we will not only fulfill our commitment, but accomplish it in a way that blesses the families we visit and our own as well. Often enough, we are the ones who are being helped up by friends or by family. But if we look around with observant eyes and the motive of a caring heart, we will recognize the opportunities the Lord places in front of us to help others and rise up and move toward their true potential. The scriptures are just, whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. It is a great source of spiritual power to live lives of integrity and righteousness and to keep our eyes on where we want to be in the eternities. Even if we can see this divine destination only with the eye of faith, it will help us to stay the course. When our intention is mainly focused on our daily successes or failures, we may lose our way, wander, and fall. Keeping our sights on higher goals will help us become better sons and brothers, kinder fathers, and more loving husbands. Even those who set their hearts upon divine goals may still occasionally stumble, but they will not be defeated. They trust and rely upon the promises of God. They will rise up again with a bright hope in a righteous God and the inspiring vision of a great future. They know they can do it now. Every person, young and old, has had his own personal experience with falling. Falling is what we mortals do. But as long as we are willing to rise up again and continue on the path toward the spiritual goals God has given us, we can learn something from failure and become better and happier as a result. My dear brethren, my dear friends, there will be times when you think you cannot continue on. Trust the Savior and His love with faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the power and hope of the restored gospel, you will be able to walk tall and continue on. Brethren, we love you. We pray for you. You should hear President Monson pray for you. Whether you are a young father, an elderly priesthood bearer, or a newly ordained deacon, we are mindful of you. The Lord is mindful of you. We acknowledge that your path will at times be difficult, but I give you this promise in the name of the Lord. Rise up and follow in the footsteps of our Redeemer and Savior, and one day you will look back and be filled with eternal gratitude that you chose to trust the Atonement and its power to lift you up and give you strength.
My dear friends and brethren, no matter how many times you have slipped or fallen, rise up. Your destiny is a glorious one. Stand tall and walk in the light of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ. You are stronger than you realize. You are more capable than you can imagine. You can do it now. Of this I testify in the sacred name of our Master and Redeemer, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. When I was sustained as a general authority last April, I was serving as a mission president in India. I observed firsthand what another former mission president had told me. The missionaries of this Church are simply stunning. One of many outstanding missionaries with whom Sister Funk and I served was Elder Pokrell from Nepal. After being a member of the Church for only two years, he was called to serve in the India-Bangalore Mission, an English-speaking mission. He would tell you he was not well prepared. That was understandable. He had never seen a missionary until he was one. He did not read English well enough to understand the instructions included with his call. When he reported to the Missionary Training Center, instead of bringing nice slacks, white shirts, and ties, he packed, in his words, five pairs of denim jeans, a couple of T-shirts, and a lot of hair gel. Even after he obtained appropriate clothing, he said he felt inadequate every day during the first few weeks. He described that time of his mission. Quote, Not only was the English difficult, but the work was just as challenging. On top of all of that, I was hungry, tired, and homesick. Even though the circumstances were tough, I was determined. I felt weak and inadequate. I would pray at those times for Heavenly Father to help me. Without fail, every time I prayed, I would feel comforted." Quote. Though missionary work was new and challenging for Elder Pokrell, he served with great faith and faithfulness, seeking to understand and follow what he was learning from the scriptures, preach my gospel, and his mission leaders. He became a powerful teacher of the gospel in English and an excellent leader. After his mission and some time in Nepal, he returned to India to continue his education. Since January, he has served as a branch president in New Delhi. Because of the real growth he experienced as a missionary, he continues to contribute to the real growth of the Church in India. How did a young man who had never seen a missionary become one with such spiritual strength? How will you receive spiritual power as a missionary to open the doors, inboxes, and hearts of those in the mission where you will serve? As usual, the answers are found in the scriptures and the words of living prophets and apostles. When the gospel was first preached in England in July 1837, the Lord revealed, Whosoever ye shall send in my name, 
by the voice of your brethren the Twelve, duly recommended and authorized by you, shall have power to open the door of my kingdom unto any nation whithersoever ye shall send them. Wherever you are sent, to whichever mission you are assigned, know that a member of the Twelve duly recommended that assignment, and you are called by the Lord's prophet. You are called by prophecy and by the laying on of hands. The Lord then gave the conditions for this promise to be fulfilled. He said, Inasmuch as, which means the promise will be fulfilled if they, meaning the missionaries who are sent, shall one, humble themselves before me, and two, abide in my word, and three, hearken to the voice of my Spirit. The Lord's promises are clear. In order to have the spiritual power necessary to open the door of the kingdom of God in the nation to which you are sent, you must be humble, obedient, and have the ability to hear and follow the Spirit. These three attributes are closely interrelated. If you are humble, you will want to be obedient. If you are obedient, you will feel the Spirit. The Spirit is essential, for as President Ezra Taft Benson taught, without the Spirit you will never succeed regardless of your talent and ability. As a mission president, I occasionally interviewed missionaries who struggled because they were not yet fully clean. They lived below their spiritual potential. No matter how hard they worked or how much good they did, they were unable to feel at peace and enjoy the companionship of the Holy Ghost until they had humbled themselves, fully repented, and partaken of the mercy and grace of the Savior. The Lord instructs His servants to be humble because the process of being made whole spiritually begins with a broken heart. Think of the good that comes from broken things. Soil is broken to plant wheat. Wheat is broken to make bread. Bread is broken to become the emblems of the sacrament. When one who is repentant partakes of the sacrament with a broken heart and a contrite spirit, he or she becomes whole. As we repent and become whole through the Atonement of Jesus Christ, we have much more to offer the Savior as we serve Him. Yea, come unto Him and offer your whole souls as an offering unto Him. If you are burdened by sin and need to repent, please do so immediately. When the Savior healed those who were afflicted, He often invited them to rise up. The scriptures record that they did so straightway or immediately. To be healed of your spiritual afflictions, please accept His invitation to rise up. Without delay, talk to your bishop branch president or mission president, and begin the process of repentance now. The healing power of the Atonement will bring peace to your soul and enable you to feel the Holy Spirit. 
The Savior's sacrifice is beyond measure, but our sins, though numerous and serious, may be counted and confessed, forsaken and forgiven. And how great is His joy in the soul that repenteth. This promise in the Doctrine and Covenants is powerful. Let virtue garnish thy thoughts unceasingly. Then shall thy confidence wax strong in the presence of God. As you live a virtuous life, you will feel a peaceful confidence in your standing before God, and you will have the power of the Spirit to be with you. Some who are newer members of the Church or who have recently returned to full activity may say, I am now worthy and have a desire to serve, but I don't know if I know enough. In April, President Thomas S. Monson taught us, quote, A knowledge of truth and the answers to our greatest questions come to us as we are obedient to the commandments of God. End quote. How reassuring it is to know that through our obedience we gain knowledge. Others may feel they have limited talents, abilities, or experience to offer. If you have such concerns, remember the experience of Elder Procrell. Prepare as well as you can, and know that our Heavenly Father will magnify your humble and obedient efforts. Elder Richard G. Scott offered this encouraging counsel, quote, When we obey the commandments of the Lord, and serve His children unselfishly, the natural consequence is power from God, power to do more than we can do by ourselves. Our insights, our talents, our abilities are expanded because we receive strength and power from the Lord." As you trust in the Lord and His goodness, the Almighty God will bless His children through you. Elder Hollings from Nevada learned that early in his mission. The day after he arrived in India, he traveled with Sister Funk and me to Rajamundri, his first area. That afternoon, Elder Hollings and Elder Ganaparam went to visit a Church member and her mother. The mother wanted to learn about the Church because she had seen how the gospel blessed the life of her daughter. Sister Funk joined them to provide fellowship. Because the lesson would be taught in English and the mother spoke only Telugu, a brother in the branch was there to interpret what was taught. Elder Hollings' assignment in his very first teaching appointment was to teach the first vision using the words of the Prophet Joseph. At that point in the lesson, he turned to Sister Funk and asked, Should I say it word for word? knowing it would be interpreted? She replied, Say it word for word, so the Spirit can testify of what you say. When this new missionary sincerely taught the first vision using the words of the Prophet, the countenance of that dear sister changed. Tears appeared. As Elder Hollings finished that glorious message, And before what he said could be interpreted, she asked through her tears in her native language, May I be baptized? 
and will you teach my son? My young fellow servants, doors and hearts open daily to the gospel message, a message that brings hope and peace and joy to the children of God throughout the world. If you are humble, obedient, and hearken to the voice of the Spirit, you will find great happiness in your service as a missionary. What a wonderful season it is to be a missionary, a time when the Lord is hastening His work. I bear witness of our Savior Jesus Christ and of His divine command to go ye therefore and teach all nations. This is His Church. He leads it through living prophets and apostles. During the next hour, the First Presidency will teach us. May we be quick to observe, as was Mormon. So when the call comes, we are worthy and able to declare with the power of the Spirit, Behold, I am a disciple of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I have been called of Him to declare His word among His people that they might have everlasting life. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Most of us at one time or another have been in a situation that was new to us, where we felt strange and insecure. This situation happened in our family about five years ago after President Monson extended the call to me to serve as a general authority of the Church. This call necessitated our family's move from the beautiful place we had enjoyed for more than two decades. My wife and I still remember the instant reaction of our children when they learned about the change. Our 16-year-old son exclaimed, It is not a problem at all. You may go. I will stay. (laughs) He then quickly resolved to accompany us and faithfully embraced this new opportunity in his life. Living in new environments over the past few years has turned out to be a learning and enjoyable experience for our family, especially due to the warm reception and goodness of the Latter-day Saints. As we have lived in different countries, we have come to appreciate that the unity of the people of God throughout the earth is something real and tangible. My calling has led me to travel to many countries and has given me the choice privilege to preside in many meetings. As I look out over various congregations, I often see members representing many countries, languages, and cultures. One marvelous aspect of our gospel dispensation is that it is not limited to a geographical area or a group of nations. It is global and universal. It is preparing for the glorious return of the Son of God by gathering His children from the four quarters of the earth. Though the membership of the Church is increasing in its diversity, our sacred heritage transcends our differences. As members of the Church, we are admitted into the House of Israel. We become brothers and sisters, equal heirs to the same spiritual lineage. God promised Abraham that for as many as receive this gospel shall be called after his name and shall be accounted his seed and shall rise up and bless him as their father. 
A promise has been made to everyone who becomes a member of the Church. Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. The word stranger comes from the Latin word extraneous, which means exterior or from the outside. Generally, it designates someone who is an outsider for various reasons, whether it be because of origin, culture, opinions, or religion. As disciples of Jesus Christ who strive to be in the world but not of the world, we sometimes feel like outsiders. We better than many know that certain doors can be closed to those who are considered to be different. Throughout time, the people of God have been commanded to care for all individuals who are strangers or who may be seen as different. In ancient times, a stranger benefited from the same obligation of hospitality as a widow or an orphan. Like them, the stranger was in a situation of great vulnerability, and his survival depended on the protection he received from, from the local population. The people of Israel received precise instructions on this subject. But the stranger that dwelleth with you shall be unto you as one born among you, and thou shalt love him as thyself, for ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. During his earthly ministry, Jesus was an example of one who went far beyond the simple obligation of hospitality and tolerance. Those who were excluded from society, those who were rejected and considered to be impure by the self-righteous, were given his compassion and respect. They received an equal part of his teachings and ministry. For example, the Savior went against the established custom of his time to address the woman of Samaria, asking her for some water. He sat down to eat with publicans and tax collectors. He didn't hesitate to approach the leper, to touch him and heal him. Admiring the faith of the Roman centurion, he said to the crowd, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. Jesus has asked us to observe the law of perfect love, which is a universal and unconditional gift. He said, For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father, which is in heaven, is perfect. In this church, there are no strangers and no outcasts. There are only brothers and sisters. The knowledge that we have of an eternal Father helps us be more sensitive to the brotherhood and sisterhood that should exist between all men and women upon the earth. A passage from the novel Les Miserables illustrates how priesthood holders can treat those individuals viewed as strangers. Jean Valjean had just been released as a prisoner. Exhausted by a long voyage and dying of hunger and thirst, he arrived in a small town seeking a place to find food and shelter for the night. When the news of his arrival spread, one by one, all the inhabitants closed their doors to him. Not the hotel, not the inn, not even the prison would invite him in. He was rejected, driven away, banished. Finally, with no strength left, he collapsed at the front door of the town's bishop.
The good clergyman was entirely aware of Vajan's background, but he invited a vagabond into his home with these compassionate words. This is not my house. It is the house of Jesus Christ. This door does not demand of him who enters whether he has a name, but whether he has a grief. You suffer, you are hungry and thirsty, you are welcome. What need have I to know your name? Besides, before you told me your name, you had one which I knew. Valjean opened his eyes in astonishment. Really, you knew what I was called? Yes, replied the bishop. You are called my brother. In this church, our wards and our quorums do not belong to us. They belong to Jesus Christ. Whoever enters our meeting houses should feel at home. The responsibility to welcome everyone has growing importance. The world in which we live is going through a period of great upheaval. Because of the increased availability of transportation, speed of communication, and globalization of economies, the earth is becoming one large village where people and nations meet, connect, and intermingle like never before. These vast worldwide changes serve the designs of Almighty God. The gathering of His elect from the four corners of the earth is not only taking place by sending missionaries to faraway countries, but also with the arrival of people from other areas into our own cities and neighborhoods. Many, without knowing it, are being led by the Lord to places where they can hear the gospel and come into His fold. It is very likely that the next person converted to the gospel in your ward will be someone who does not come from your usual circle of friends and acquaintances. You may know this by his or her appearance, language, manner of dress, or color of skin. This person may have grown up in another religion with a different background or a different lifestyle. Fellowshipping is an important priesthood responsibility. Aaronic and Melchizedek priesthood quorums are to act in concert with the sisters under the direction of the bishop to ensure that each person is welcomed with love and kindness. Home teachers and visiting teachers will be watchful to ensure that no one is forgotten or ignored. We all need to work together to build spiritual unity within our wards and branches. An example of perfect unity existed among the people of God after Christ visited the Americas. The record observes that there were no Lamanites, quote, nor any manner of ites, but they were in one the children of Christ and heirs to the kingdom of God, close quote. Unity is not achieved by ignoring and isolating members who seem to be different or weaker and only associating with people who are like us. On the contrary, unity is gained by welcoming and serving those who are new and who have particular needs. These members are a blessing for the Church and provide us with opportunities to serve our neighbors and thus purify our own hearts. So, my brothers, it is your duty to reach out to anyone who appears at the doors of your Church buildings. Welcome them with gratitude and without prejudice. If people you do not know walk into one of your meetings, greet them warmly and invite them to sit with you. 
please make the first move to help them feel welcome and loved rather than waiting for them to come to you. After your initial welcome, consider ways you can continue to minister to them. I once heard of a ward where, after the baptism of two deaf sisters, two marvelous Relief Society sisters decided to learn sign language so they could better communicate with these new converts. What a wonderful example of love for fellow brothers and sisters in the gospel. I bear witness that no one is a stranger to our Heavenly Father. There is no one whose soul is not precious to Him. With Peter, I testify that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. I pray that when the Lord gathers his sheep at the last day, he may say to each one of us, I was a stranger, and ye took me in. Then we will say to him, When saw we thee a stranger and took thee in? And he will answer us, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.